Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise? The podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Today, Derek and I are joined by one of my oldest and dearest friends, Cale Sutherland Esquire, an associate lawyer practicing injury and health law in London, Ontario at Learners LLP. Our chat about the differences and similarities between the courtroom and classroom opens up to an enriching chat about data, language, and of course, a little privacy too. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. We're back. Thank you so much for your patience, everyone. It has been a really busy term for both Derek and I, but we're stoked to be able to come back here with one of our all-time favorite interviews. As some of you know, I recently moved to Kingston, Ontario to begin a two-year postdoc at Queen's University with the Surveillance Studies Centre. It has been a phenomenal experience, which also means that it's been exceedingly time-consuming. I've been trying to get back to my hometown of London, Ontario, as much as I can, which has also been a challenge unto itself. But on a recent trip, I was finally able to catch up with my buddy Kale, someone who was also exceedingly busy. Derek and I had the pleasure of putting a microphone in front of Mr. Sutherland, whose years of experience in the law provides him a unique skill set and view that is as unique as it is unfamiliar to our show. Kale is a graduate of Bond Law out of the sunny, beautiful Australian Gold Coast, and he's a King's grad too. As you're going to find out, he astutely puts his sociology minor to hard work here. The three of us navigate a ton of confusion in the pursuit of clarity in this show, which of course includes Derek's curiosity about whether or not the law is like the high-paced, high-stakes environment depicted in the hit TV series Suits. That's something I've actually wondered about too, and Kale's going to do a great job of debunking that for us. We also get to debunk a presupposition that Derek and I had about the differences between the courtroom and the classroom. As we discover together, there's actually a ton in common. Dealing with anxiety, expectation management, the role of intuition and confidence, as well as the value of failure. The three of us also get to unpack the intimacies between data and language, especially in revealing how important this relationship is in what the three of us do on a daily basis. Our chat about data and language even opens up to a small conversation about the recent Ottawa Senators' privacy controversy, which gets to incorporate some really interesting matters of agency and trust, which of course brings us full circle to some final thoughts. On language and data itself. What I've admired about Kale over the years as a friend is what I admire about him now as an interviewee and a professional. He's intelligent, witty, and wise. He's a highly motivated, ambitious, and committed guy in everything that he does. That makes him tough to keep up with. So much so that I'd nearly forgotten who it is that he works with inside and outside of the courtroom and his office on a daily basis. Anyone, uh, there's there's no there's no specific group of people who <clears throat> who I will or won't 
represent. Right. So it, it's fact specific, it's scenario specific, but I, in my practice, I, I represent a cross section of people in the sense that I, I might represent your grandmother, right? Who, let's say she goes to the grocery store like anybody else does, and there's some fluid that they didn't clean up. They didn't put a sign out. She slips, breaks her leg. I, I actually have m- numerous cases with that fact, fact scenario, real life, just every day. On the slipping in the grocery store? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's somehow very common. So still, still, <laughs> even though people Factual. like me have been doing this for <laughs> decades, literally doing grocery stores for decades over the same scenario, it still continues to happen. But I guess that's what happens when you employ 16-year-olds and they don't really care. Right, so moving on. Um, that's this milk. I, yeah, right, right, yeah. Milk's gone bad. Milk <laughs> yeah, so that's, um, that's one element. But then I'm also representing, um, without going into detail because I can't, physicians mm. in every level of physician maybe i maybe i represent a a family physician um in a scenario uh who, who is kind of an everyday person they're they're front lines staff but i also represent specialists uh to the extent that you know it's not it's not rocket science it's not brain surgery well sometimes i'm looking deeply into the elements of brain surgery for for a case so mm. my practice is is very sorry very unique in that way that i you know, some days I'm talking about milk on the floor and, mm. and other days I'm delving into very, very in-depth aspects of medicine. Mm. So, and sometimes that's between my morning and my afternoon, right? I don't know how you do the teeter-totter thing because like for Derek and I, when we have meetings in our offices, it's just usually talking to students. Yeah. Or a sure. bonehead like me will walk into his office and ask him a completely unrelated question. So it might feel like you're dealing with a different kind of audience, but... I've wondered what it's like having to switch gears. And as we were talking about, like before we got rolling here, did, do you notice a big difference between sitting down talking with a physician or just a regular client based upon like their openness and they're willing to engage with you? Like, do you find people are nervous when they sit down with you in your office? Yeah. Um, but not because of what their standing or position or, you know, their, their employment is. Yeah. That isn't the defining factor. The defining <clears throat> factor is is wholly dependent on who they are as people so some of the most nervous people who i've dealt with in my everyday job are the physicians who who are eminent in their field and you'd think that person is extremely competent Mm -hmm. extremely confident in their ability to do their job but that doesn't mean that they're confident walking into a lawyer's office it's a totally different world it's an absolutely i speak a different language than they do they don't they see the medicine I see the holes in it and how I'm going to frame that to defend them. Likewise, I have somebody who walks in and let's say they, you know, they, they, they have an everyday job um, and they walk in and they tell me, boom, here's my case. Bam, 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 ABC, sub points. And I'm like, holy jump. And this person just, they get it. And, and it's not because they have legal training. Mm-hmm. It's, it's maybe they got a bit of street training. Yeah. And they know how to argue on their own behalf. They know how to advocate for themselves. They don't, they don't need me as, as much as that physician who makes $370,000 a year might need me. Mm. So it's very interesting, that dichotomy between there, there is no blueprint yeah. for, the, for the ideal client or the, or the ideal issue. It's, it's totally fact-specific and dependent upon the person. Yeah. And do you find like, uh, that people who you're representing in terms of their professional status like doctors and and the like that they kind of get self-defensive at times or do you feel like when they're in your office that they'll 
that they have more to lose. So that might be one of the reasons why they are a little bit sketchy or maybe um, I would, I would argue that a physician who, who is um, either in regulatory kind of an issue regulatory based, or they're in an issue where they're being sued has less to lose than a person who just shattered their leg. Yeah. Um, and maybe can't mm. work the machine that mm-hmm. they're paid to do when they've worked for 40 years. Mm-hmm. So um, I think everybody who I talk to has an element of uh, distrust for the system simply maybe because of naivete. They just don't know what it is. Yeah. And that's a big part of my job is, is helping people understand why and, and how we're going to move forward with whatever their issue is. Um, so yeah, there's always a sense of that mm-hmm. um, professionally, you know, uh, like, like you guys and what you do and, and what I do, if somebody were to impugn me on my, you know, the, my legal advice to someone, I'm going to have my backup. Of course I am. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. I think it transcends who that, you know, where that person works or what they do for a living or yeah. whatever. And I think it's just more of a natural inclination to say, mm-hmm. here's my best case, the way I see it. And my yeah. job is to say that that's actually irrelevant yeah. <laughs> <laughs> much of the time. So, yeah. That, that's interesting that I see when, when Derek was asking the question about whether or not they would be defensive, I almost start imagining immediately that they would be. Mm-hmm. Because of the opposite, right? You said they don't really have a lot to lose. And I'm thinking, like, it's a lawyer sitting in front of me. Yeah, don't I do they surgery. Do. You can't possibly know anything about that. You can mm-hmm. go and read a book. You can read a manual, sure. But you're not the person there doing the dissecting. The stakes are completely different. Sure. So I'm imagining these people are, are completely defensive all the way through. So this totally surprises me to hear, hear otherwise. But it makes me wonder then, like, what is the biggest challenge you have? What is the major obstacle that you deal with when you're talking to a physician in your office? Uh, it's the same challenge you guys have. Uh, it's language. It's, mm-hmm. it's trying to find the right way to define the issue that's in front of me, and that's what I'm paid to do. Uh, I, I work with data. Uh, it's funny. So on my way here, <laughs> on my way here, this is what Sound I Sound like an academic. <laughs> I thought we were interviewing a lawyer today. Yeah. What's going on here? Well, you just wait. <laughs> um, no, so on my way here, I, I asked my car through Google um, yes. to, to define data for me. And it said it's a collection of facts and numbers, maybe something of that nature collected for a reference or analysis, I think is essentially what it told me. And I thought that you guys would enjoy the fact that I Googled that through my phone with a voice command, right? <laughs> anyway, that's what I do. That's what I do. I collect facts and data, I put it together and I synthesize it with language. And the difficulty is that, that bridge yeah. to taking what my client tells me and then what the documentation that comes through tells me and synthesizing that into their legal defense and argument. And then there's a whole bunch of subsets to that, like stress management. I I'm paid a good part of my pay is helping my client manage their stress. That's a big, that's a big reason why you hire a lawyer because the whole system is scary and overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Does It's not necessarily efficient yeah. <laughs> in every respect. So you hire me to do that, you know, 30,000 foot analysis with the data and the information that I get, but you also hire me to, to tell you everything's going to be okay or to tell you straight up it's not. And that's what they need, right? So I work in data and I work in language. It's just a bit different from you guys. Yeah. And you work in, it sounds like therapy as well. Absolutely. That's a part of it. That's yeah. a lot to take in, man. You yeah, really so do unpack s- that. Go, go. You guys just, <laughs> you guys just run with that. <laughs> I, oh, this is so cool. I've got so many questions now. Language and data. 
Mm. We should be getting him over here and doing some sociology lectures. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds exactly... Uh, so it's a sociology minor, by the way. Oh, I didn't disclose see, that. Yeah, there's, nice. Yeah, I didn't disclose that. So you can, you can feel the sociology emanating from you when, you, when right. you're talking because it's not... It doesn't sound like a sort of traditional trope of a lawyer to, to talk about language and, and data as the sort of big challenges that they have. Yeah, I mean, I can... If I'm if I'm going to boil that down to an everyday, you know, what's the biggest challenge I have? It's it's maybe it's expectation. Mm. Maybe that's it, right? Um, you know, a client's expectation for how things are going to go, and that that is inherently formed and maybe dispelled or maybe augmented by my language and the way that I take the information and I develop it into my advice to them. Do you see language and data being completely separate things? No. 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 No, you can't, you can't, without data, you can't, what's the purpose of language? That's, you need language to communicate data. That's the only, like, that's, to me, that is the basis of everything, I guess. I don't know, of communication, certainly, but. I, the reason why I'm asking is just because most of what I do is in, like, critical data studies. That's, that's kind of like the general critical framework that I've been using for most of my work. And a lot of the people I read say things like, that is not fact at all. That is like a measurement, a very, very small measurement of something going on in the world that you weren't there to see. So no matter how much data you have, it can never paint a full picture. Hence, critical data, right? Right. So when I, when I ask you the question about like data and, and language, I, I don't know how to really separate those things because they almost become synonymous for me. You know what I mean? From my background. Yeah. So geeking out here, three sociologists... I'm just wondering, like, does this problematize for you at all inside of, of your office? Like, do you, do you find that you have to make those kind of distinctions with people? Or is this more clear cut for you? It's, it's intuitive for me. I, I would never sit down with a client and explain to them the intricacies of how the information they give me is going to be synthesized into a legal argument. Mm. That's a waste of time. They're not paying me for that. They don't, <laughs> that's what the podcast for, Tom. <laughs> they, yeah, I'm not gonna charge them my hourly rate to to hypothesize on why what I have to say is important. No, <laughs> I'm gonna get a really big invoice. At the end. That's right, <laughs> it's coming. No, um, so like, no, I've never. This is the first time I've ever considered that congruence and tried to explain it. Mm-hmm. it it's not something I dwell on. My my job really is far more practical than what we're talking about. But uh, I'm interested in looking at it, you know, from that that bigger view. I guess. Is, mm-hmm. And I'm interested to sit here and do that with you guys. But um, no, it's not something that I ever really consider. And in and, and practicing law is, I think there's a, a part of it that's very intuitive. You know, if you're going to be successful in it or, or enjoy it, <laughs> it has to be, it has to come from, yeah, from right. you, right? Like, sure. it's yeah. not, so, there's, no, there's no script, there's no playbook necessarily for each client meeting. It's just, you know, you build it on skill and experience. I think it was Harvard or... One of the Ivy schools recently published a paper saying that after a scientific study was done on a bunch of participants dealing with big data and scientific rational analysis of like a given material problem, they found unanimously that people were more reliable and more accurate if they used their intuition instead of data and measurements in order to come to an answer or to, to confidently build an understanding of what was actually taking place. Sure. And I don't think about data and language that way ever. 
That's really fascinating that you moved to intuition because like the back of my head and all the training that I've ever had through graduate school says, no, think about it. Think, 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 think. Use as many different social scientific theories as you possibly can to figure this problem out. And here you are sitting telling me you work with data and language, but intuition works for you. That's such a bizarre thing for me otherwise. But here's this damned report coming out of Harvard or whoever it was telling me, just trust your gut. Yeah. Maybe I should do that more. It's a big, I think it applies to anything in life, really. Yeah. Being able to trust yourself. I mean, having the confidence to know that you, you do have good judgment in whatever you do and whatever you claim to be good at uh, is, is key, I think. But it certainly is in the courtroom in the sense that, um, you know, if I'm standing up in front of a judge and I've got, you know, and, and I don't want to say that it's all intuition. I don't just shoot from the hip. Just mm. FYI. Well, for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's not what I'm talking about, right? Um, I, you, you build the ability to have good intuition based upon like forethought, hard work, grounding yourself in the data in the sense that, you know, if I've got somebody who breaks their knee, I have tons of data from, from treatment providers who are going to tell me what kind of flexion that person's knee should have as a regular person, what it had maybe beforehand, if they've ever been through that before, and then what it is now that they've broken their knee and healed it to some degree. Um, and, you know, my data is, well, they've lost 12 degrees of flexion. Mm. But I have to turn that into something more than, your honor, 12 degrees of flexion. Yeah. The heck does that yeah. mean? I have to synthesize that into the overall narrative and the story of my client and what my client's going through and why that my client should, should be compensated what I think they should be for that injury, right? So that is it's absolutely the, the basis here. Um, but without knowing how that fits into the narrative, it doesn't matter. It's useless. Because I, I can't win a trial because I threw a bunch of paper at the jury and said, read all this. They're going to they're say, what the heck is all this, right? So I need, I need to be the person to go between so that I can interpret that for them and tell them why it matters to my client, mm -hmm. right? So, um, yeah, so in that sense, intuition is built on, on your experience doing that and failing at that, frankly. And, and, you know, going back and considering the time that I, you know, met with a client and explained to them why something was the way it was, and then I went back to my office and said, they didn't really get that until the third time I described it, why? And then I can use that in my intuition next time with my client, but also in court. Because my client's just a person. And so is a jury. It's just multiple people. Right? So that's High it. stakes, man. Yeah. Such high stakes. In our mm. classroom, we use intuition often mm. when we get into these kind of language yeah. things. You know, you know what it's like. You're staring in front of a, a group of people and they're looking at you like, yeah. I know people listening right now can't see me doing this. Yeah. Lifting my eyebrows, like <laughs> pure confusion. But yeah. I get that pretty often in my classroom. That's probably my problem. But how you bridge that isn't usually by like, at least in my experience, it's not falling back on, oh, page 76 from this textbook says I'm supposed to say this in the situation. We don't have that. Right. It's something more intuitive. And we learn through our failures. I, I in, in terms of my pedagogy and my teaching, I learned through failure more than I learned through success. Uh, because like Absolutely. I can, when we're sitting there in a room of 30 or sometimes a hundred people and suddenly the eyes start, the eyebrows start going up and I, I can tell that they don't understand and I have to go three or four times and explain things. And, and I've seen that failure. Then I can actually kind of reflect on that after the fact and be like, all right, like that didn't work. I'm not going to try that again. Right. <clears throat> I think a big part of that is the fact that someone is always going to call you on your failure. You're always going to be made aware that you failed. Yeah. Not maybe yeah. not always, but more often than when you've been successful. Oftentimes when you've been successful, you don't get you don't get that bounce back. You don't get the mm -hmm. report. 
that says that went really well and I understood you very well. It just ends because you did it. You did it well or something. See, it's I think it's a little bit different for us being in the academy in the classroom all the time because if a lecturer makes a mistake, most of the time we don't have a student telling us that. Mm-hmm. And Fair. if if yeah. they do have, um, some might call the audacity, or I might call you know. The initiative, the initiative or the maturity mm-hmm. to, to feel comfortable enough doing that, despite that it's going to be tough. Um, we, we don't have people saying you messed up Yeah, because it's like an academic general. freedom thing. Right. So it makes me wonder, like, how do you know if you screw up in a courtroom? I, and, and I don't mean like you lost the case and you know, you made a mistake. Sure. Did you have any other indicators? Do you have like people from the firm doing performance reviews with you and stuff? Or does yeah. your client just give you help? <laughs> Uh, yeah, for sure you do. Um, again, part of it is, is going back and reviewing what you've done. And we have the benefit of transcripts whenever we're in open court. Right. Um, so I review a lot of my transcripts, uh, not necessarily from court as much as, uh, examinations for discovery, which I won't necessarily get into, but it's an opportunity for myself and then the lawyer representing the other party to examine each other's clients and get information. Um, and there's a skill, a, a large skill set involved with that. And I'm, I'm a relatively junior lawyer, and I should preface what I said previously by saying that I haven't actually conducted a jury trial. I've been in jury trials, but I haven't been in front of them mm-hmm. instruct- and, and you know, trying to convince them with, with submissions. Uh, I've been in front of judges many times, but, um, but there's, this, there's this inherent uh, difference when there's a jury. Anyways, um, so I guess, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, you know, when you screw up in court specifically, a judge is probably going to tell you and and maybe, maybe not verbally. Yeah. You know, Mr. Sutherland, that is a terrible argument that shows up in the decision. So yeah. he doesn't say Mr. Sutherland Esquire. No, 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 he doesn't. I've, I've been lobbying for that, but they're, uh, they're, they're not very receptive, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so they, they won't, they don't, won't necessarily say anything to you, but uh, body language is a, a big aspect of, of anything, right? Mm. Anytime you're, you're orating for any purpose, you, you need to be watching who you're orating to to get their body language. So a judge might not necessarily tell you anything, but if they stopped writing and they're staring at you, they aren't liking what you're saying. Mm. A judge who's writing is a judge who's going to perhaps put that into their decision. They might be writing about why they don't agree with what you're saying, yeah. but they're writing something, they're engaging. Yeah. A judge who isn't engaging with you, you you've lost them. And if you're on your best argument and they're just staring at you like that, that's when you know you probably aren't doing so hot. I haven't seen a lot of live action judges before. Maybe one. But in pop culture, like on TV, when I see Judge Judy yeah. and some of those other ones, they either have a completely flat affect or they're like in your face, can barely you know, sit down on their chair and they look like they're about to jump through your TV screen. What is it usually like for you? Like you say you can read body language, but is it like really discernible most of the time? Um, I would say yes, but it's also you have to keep in mind that judges are lawyers um, before they were judges. So I know, I kind of know how, I already know where my pitfalls are when I go into court and I would hope that any lawyer does. So I already know where I'm maybe going to get into some trouble. So it's not as though there's just, there's just some time when all of a sudden I realize the judge is not buying it. I probably know that I might can have a hard sell on this one. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it, it's, I've, already, I've already been prompted by my own knowledge and my pr- preparation to know that I'm probably going to get a bit of pushback. So, um, so in that sense, most judges are pretty, 
pretty flat, pretty pretty straight. I mean, they're they're professionals. Uh, they represent one of the most important aspects of our society. Uh, they they are not they're not you know yelling <laughs> in court. Uh, it's not like that. It's very the decorum in Canada, uh, and I should only speak to Ontario, but the decorum I would imagine everywhere else in Canada as well is very respectful, uh, collegial. Uh, I call if I'm in if I'm in court, uh, the lawyer who's for the other party, I call him my friend. My your honor, my friend stated to you, but I would I would actually counter argue that this is this is more appropriate. Mm. Uh, a, a more appropriate mm. way for you to consider this fact, right? So the decorum is very collegial, uh, generally, um, and judges judges are the, the 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 people who run that and who demand it. Yeah, there there's decorum when some when a judge walks in, we stand and and we're invited to make submissions to the court, and then we bow. And so it's there's a very um, it kind of feels old-fashioned in that sense mm -hmm. but i think it's very important because it engenders that respect for everybody in the room yeah right so no we don't get screamed at but i'll tell a funny story there's a the first time i was ever in court uh for anybody who doesn't know the way that you become a lawyer is that you receive your legal education and then in ontario you either go through uh, what's called the articling process so you become basically a student trainee lawyer uh, and you do that for nine months or so and then at the end of that you're called to the bar and you're a full-fledged lawyer the other way is you can go through a program now. Ontario's devised an alternative path where you go through a second set of legal training and it's more practical. I believe it's called the LPP, Legal Practice Program, something of that nature. So I went through the articling side of things. And as an articling student, you're only allowed to speak to certain issues. You can't speak to something that is definitive for a client's rights. So I can't go in and argue a motion that could, if, if I lose it, result in my client's case being thrown out. Mm. You're not allowed to do that. So you you, inter, you, you do smaller motions, uh, you know, kind of interim motions dealing with, let's say, productions. So you want a police file. In my case, I do a lot of that, dealing with getting police files because that tells me what happened in the accident, right? So you do that kind of thing. The first time I ever went to court, I, uh, I, made, I made some submissions that were, I thought, pretty good, um, but weren't. <laughs> so I'm thinking, bringing us back to about 10 minutes ago and I was asked, how do you know? Well, this is how you know when a judge isn't <laughs> buying what you're selling. So I'm standing there shaking, right? And uh, <laughs> this judge, um, who's a, a local judge, very respected, like great judge, um, kind of puts both of his elbows onto his, you know, the bar in front of him and he leans toward me and he has glasses that separate in the middle. If you've ever seen those and they hang on a chain on your neck. Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah, they separate right on the bridge. And then oh, so you can hang. like snap yeah. them off. So you your can face. take them off really easily and put them and oh. let them hang down. Yeah, and you drop them, and then they, the magnets reconnect, yeah. right? So oh, he okay. he takes his glasses off. I've never seen these, by the way. This is like I was as astonished as you are right now. I only know because my my partner's dad has them. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> so I know, Derek. <laughs> yeah, so he does this, and they're like swinging like a pendulum when he reconnects them. Like, <laughs> like I can just imagine. I'm, I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm below the pendulum. And he says, Mr. Sutherland, I'm going to let you redo that. And that's when I was like, Woo! <laughs> so that's, that's when I knew that one didn't go well. And I ended up winning the motion. I got what I wanted and mm -hmm. everything was, was fine. So I guess to bring it all around, there are times when it's made quite clear to you. Don't let the cat halfway out of the bag here. What is it that you did that he didn't like? Uh, well, I can't really, you know, you can't I, really clients, yeah I, can't, you know, I don't want privacy to go through matters. that i don't want to go through well, that there's ways in but... which you can <laughs> signpost that you know yeah i just i just i just wholly misunderstood the gravity mm. of a fact that i thought was definitive and in retrospect 
after considering what he said, I recognized was was not mm. definitive. And I, I kind of leaned on it when I, when I it wasn't the right thing to lean on. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's an element of, you know, it wasn't my file and I didn't see the whole big picture. Mm-hmm. So he helped me through that. But in any way, uh, that, so that's a good example of in, in the courtroom setting. Uh, that's about as, <laughs> about as effusive as the judge has been in my, in my time. But, you know, other times there's people who don't understand the basic rules and their judges are people. They, yeah. get, they get frustrated with if people are, you know, making the same mistakes over and over and over. And unfortunately that happens. Mm-hmm. And they'll have, you know, you'll be the third lawyer up and the two, you know, two lawyers prior to you who were, who were in court that day um, might have made a, a very simple procedural error. And the judge says, here's how you correct it to the first person. The second person, the judge says, were you not paying attention when this person just 25 minutes ago stood in front of me and made the same mistake? And they say, oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I was outside speaking to my client on the phone. Well, that's pretty good pretty good reason to, to not have seen that. Yeah, yeah. But then the third person comes up and you say, what's the likelihood that that person has been sitting here for two hours and yeah. didn't pick up on those two issues, which are exactly the same. And that's when you get a judge who's pretty upset with you. Mm-hmm. So. Huh. Earlier you spoke about like <clears throat> setting expectations and part of your job is dealing with expectations. Yeah. And the first thing that came to my mind when you said that is like, you know what? Most people's expectations come from popular culture. And this might be a predictable question for you, but how similar is your job to Suits? I imagine you've seen that show, right? <laughs> I, I can't wait for your answer on this one. I really want to hear this. This what? must be a very common, so I apologize. No, no, it's, it, it, <laughs> no it's, and it's not because I have had this conversation with Kale before, but because he reminds me of one particular <laughs> character in that show very, very much. You, you do this. kind of have a look of a, a particular character who is a lead in that show. Would you care to tell our audience who it is? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. It's Harvey, right? <laughs> I was going to say my answer. My I answer, wasn't okay. thinking Harvey, but... <laughs> my answer to your question was, my life is like 99% Harvey. Uh, the practice of law is about 1% suits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not close. Um, yeah. It's not. It's just not. And, and I should caveat, there's a caveat to that, and that is that I've never practiced in downtown New York yeah. or in downtown Toronto, and things are different, but I don't think they're so radically different that yeah. they're closer to suits than what I do. So. Yeah, I'm just thinking like maybe some of your clients have expectations that that's how things are going to transpire, that it just does not meet those. Does that yeah. ever come oh, to pass? Absolutely. That's that's a big part of of doing what I, I do. And that's not to say that, that clients are like irrational or something like yeah. that. Uh, part of the problem is is that aspect of media that seeps in and the expectation like, well, what, you know, why weren't you in there yelling and screaming to advocate for me? Mm-hmm. Well, because we have a level of decorum, which I've already spoken about. Yeah. That's not, why did you call that guy your friend? He's a lawyer who's trying to, to bilk me. And it's like, well, you're supposed decorum. to go hire a private investigator and find out his personal life and that he's <laughs> cheated on his wife. Which I've done. No, <laughs> no, I, I haven't done that. Um, but no, the, uh, the, the real, the, the real, thing is the internet i think really yeah. cha- really revolutionized the relationship between a lawyer and and their client and and i'm speaking you know obviously in retro <laughs> i don't have any experience with pre-internet law but mm-hmm. i can only imagine the the knowledge gap between a lawyer in 1992 and their client uh, there was no way for that client to access the even the basics of what the law was mm-hmm. the, the legislation and the case law 
you, you had to go to a library yeah. and you had to know to look up the, the Ontario reports, the ORs as we call them, which is where all the case law was printed before the internet. Uh, and then you have to have a sense of how to find the specific issue you're looking for in the indexes. So you need to know the catchword. Mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. You need to know that you're looking for causation or contributory negligence. I mean, you have to know what that is before you can look it up, mm-hmm. right? So that, that language barrier was, was the biggest, I think, aspect that controlled the expectational aspect of that relationship. Yeah. And now um, the internet has, has provided people, and I think in a lot of ways in a good, in a good way, uh, with the access to understanding the, the basics of what's going on with their, their case and, and with the law generally. Um, but other times it can create expectations because everybody's case is different. Yeah. And, and because somebody who had a similar injury to you, and I'm speaking anecdotally, somebody who has a similar injury to you uh, might get double what you get because mm-hmm. you have what we would call contributory liability or contributory negligence. If you, were, if you contributed to your own injury, yeah. despite the fact that you have the exact same mechanism of injury to your knee mm-hmm. as case number one, you, you, don't, aren't, you aren't going to get the same amount of compensation because you contributed to it. So there's a lesser degree that, you know, you got to take that out. So if you saw that milk and you decided to go run towards it. Because you were thirsty. Because you were really thirsty. Right. Yeah, you might have contributed to that. That makes sense. Right, you got it. So it's <laughs> slip and slide for a while and have some fun. But. Yeah. Yeah. So to some degree, like, you know, uh, somebody can look that up on the Internet and yeah. say that person slipped on milk and they broke their knee and look at how much money they got. And why are you telling me that my case is worth less than that? And so it's good and it's, and it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but that really is, I think, kind of one of the main parts of expectation yeah. uh, in, in that way. And it's never like content. I've never I've never had a contentious uh, you know, arg- argument with a client about it. It just requires that level of ex- uh, explanation. Yeah, to get on the same page, and and then everything's everything's good. But expectation is absolutely an important part of what I do. Trying to trying to manage that and and help people see why I'm giving them the advice that I'm giving them. Right. So, on this note of expectation, what is something you find in your profession that could never be captured by a show like Suits? And I don't mean like the mundane things. Oh, I was going like to say one the, the big thing. <laughs> like, like the fact that I set well, up my desk. Hey, if you and, want to talk about the boring stuff. Well, no, no. I'm just saying you can't put it on TV. Like, who's going to watch me grind out a research paper for an hour and a half on TV? I mean, that's my life. That, that is actually what I do. Meeting the client is after I've put in the hours to get prepared to, under, to, to be able to give them good, solid, proper, correct legal advice, right? That's what Suits never did. Mm-hmm. Somehow Harvey Specter had this like encyclopedic mind that he knew everything about everything. You walk into his office, he spins a basketball in his hand, takes a shot of whiskey and says, that's how we're going to win it. Mm-hmm. And then they go and they win it somehow. That's just not real. And um, every time that they were doing legal research, it ended up in like a sex scene. <laughs> and every time I imagine that it's not like that. I can dispel that rumor. <laughs> I can. I can. I know it's... I'd like to be able to say, that, you know, no, it's, it's just not that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an office job in, in yeah. many respects. It's yeah. just, we have this really cool next level mm-hmm. that we get to go put it into action and, uh, and kind of do, do intellectual battle with each other, you know, at times as well, which is, which is fun. And I think ultimately is kind of something that drew me to that, yeah. to that profession, um, as opposed to something that's, you know, b- being an accountant, which is very similar. In many ways, mm-hmm. like, like I would say like 80% of my day is very similar to an accountant's day. They still meet with their clients. They give them advice. They explain how the complex tax structures work. But generally speaking, they don't go sit in a room with another accountant with somebody in the middle of them and explain, you know, argue about why they 
they're right and that that other accountant's interpretation of that legislature and whatever it is is wrong right yeah, yeah so what's your favorite what's your favorite part of your job would that would it be that no i wouldn't say it is actually i'd say it's it's people it's yeah. the you know being able to interact with a yeah. cross section of people and the fact that i get to keep my brain engaged all all day every day mm-hmm. uh, is is a really nice thing too um the, the subject matter with medicine is something i never thought i'd really be engaged in but mm-hmm. I, I am on a daily basis now uh, and that's really interesting so but I, ultimately i think it comes down to, to people i like to i like to work with people talk to people uh, get to know people help people mm-hmm. um i've always been in customer service prior to to doing this work yeah um and it's just ingrained in who i am so i think that's a big part of why i enjoy my job as much as i do because if you can't if, if if you grind through paperwork and you know case law and all those kinds of things but you don't really feel like meeting with the client to describe it. You can't do what I do. Like you'll, you'll burn out. Mm. So now this, this may be the worst segue in the history of this podcast. It's actually pretty good at bad segues. I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm really bad. I'm really bad with my segues, but are you a hockey fan? I am. No, okay. no, yes. no, we're All not right. going there. I, I know. Stop it. I know Stop that. It. No, hold on. Hold on. No, nothing to do with this. I know that you're not um, an an expert in privacy law, although you might have some some background um, knowledge. Yep. But recently, I'm sure that you're aware there was this case with the Ottawa Senators. Yeah, the Uber. Um, yeah, and the Uber. And and um, uh, on Thursday in my class, I actually I teach a catastrophe class. I made this nice little funny joke at the beginning of class. Today we're going to talk about the biggest catastrophe um, known to man the 2018 Ottawa Senators and everyone was laughing, but the whole sort of, it's not wrong. It isn't, it is. That's, that's very <laughs> it's, true. It's kind of a mess. They seem to be crashing and burning a little bit. And this Uber thing was really interesting because it, it like, it's a really interesting intersection of law versus like morality versus like weird, um, just like what everyone does when yeah. they're pissed off about their boss. Like we can all, we've all been there. We can all relate to talking a little bit of smack about our boss and stuff. I haven't. <laughs> Just to put that out there. Nor have I. Nor right. I'm not even we sure. We haven't. We're yeah, very yeah. respectful people. We wouldn't do that. But right, but, I'm with you. But um, it really raised these questions of like expectations of privacy and, and whether or not this was like legal and whether or not like the, the Uber driver like should have done that. What are your thoughts like professionally about that? Like, Yeah. So privacy is one of the one of the hot button topics in in law right now mm. as it is pretty much everywhere i think in our society um so that that specific aspect i don't know the law on uh the expectation of privacy for somebody who gets into a commercial vehicle mm-hmm. uh whether i don't know if there needs to be some kind of disclosure about the fact that there is recording or if it's implied because not in arizona yeah, not one, in Arizona. As long as one per yeah, one person right. knows it didn't that it's happened happen. in Ottawa, did it? Exactly. It that, that adds this like like caveat right. to yeah. this entire story. Right. People yeah. want to apply Canadian law. So I'm kind of thinking Yeah. I, I, continue. Yeah, I don't I don't have any specific training in privacy law. Uh, it comes up certainly, especially on the regulatory side of what I do. Yeah. Um in health law, it comes up. Um obviously patients don't want um their personal information being proliferated or mis, mis, uh, misapplied or sent to the wrong office or, you know, those kinds of things. So I know how it works in a medical legal context, but um, more broadly, I don't know. But my thoughts on that, um, 
<laughs> I guess generally are are the world has changed so much in the last 10 years that an astute person with something to lose ought to be aware that at all times, especially if they're a public figure, they they are in the position that anyone could be recording what they're saying, doing, uh, you know, how the way they look, anything mm-hmm. of that nature. And it's it's so invasive that on a personal level, it bothers me a lot that that exists in our in our life, but I'm powerless to to stop it. Yeah. And and you need to conform a bit. And again, especially if you represent something bigger than just yourself, yeah. um, such as if you're a professional athlete, paid millions of dollars, uh, the brand is dependent upon you as a player, but also you as a, a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's more and more and more evident that that's the way things work. You just need to be aware. So I think it's really bad. Like I, I feel for those guys because everybody's done it. Yeah. As you said. Except us. Except us. Because <laughs> we have such good judgment. Right. Um, no, Especially but especially like, when you're a fan of the Montreal Canadiens, there I've ousted the elephant. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I was, that was going to be a follow-up question. Hockey. Yeah, because um, I was like, yeah, that's brutal too. It's I'm not sorry. that brutal. It's actually really good. They played really well, but <laughs> they are. They're off, off to a good hockey. start. We'll see if that continues. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that was a pretty cliche answer, actually, yeah. what I gave you. But I, it's one of those one of those aspects of 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 life now that you yeah. just need to be aware. Like if I'm sitting in a cab and I've been out with my friends. Um, and and I start talking about one of my clients' cases, like what am I doing? You can't. You need to be more aware. Yeah. Uh, and, and they need to be aware that if they're going to say stuff that specific and name the coach and you know those yeah. kinds, of, they need to be aware that that easily could come back around. Yeah. Because you know all it takes is one Uber driver who would love that ten grand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it's a pretty big incentive for that guy. And I'm not saying he it was, you know, he absolutely should not have done that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's there. Yeah. What one of the re- or the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because I think that one I'm a hockey fan, so following news, this was a this was one of the big stories of the past week in, in sport. But also, it has direct um, implications for our understandings, our public understanding of privacy and and expectations to privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, these things often play out first in the public sphere with a big public figure. Say, whether it be Donald Trump, whether it be an Ottawa Senators fan or a player. And the question here is really about our shifting understanding of privacy in the public sphere. It seems as if we don't have any, there is no expectation of privacy. The second you step out of your bedroom, things are collecting data, collecting information on us uh, almost everywhere we look or we, we are. And, and, in every realm, whether it be a Google Play or Alexa or like Google Home or or Siri, things are listening to us. Yeah. So, how do we navigate that legally? Um, the the law is traditionally behind society, mm-hmm. and that's for very practical reasons. Like you need to draft it. Yeah. And then it needs to pass through legislature. The mundane. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. But, I, but I mean, in the sense that it takes years yeah, it takes yeah. time. to get a piece of legislation written, refined, and passed. So when things move as quickly as they do in our society, inherently, there, there isn't gonna, you're not going to be able to sit down with a lawyer who, who's going to be able to say definitively, here's how you should handle the fact that whenever you say, you know, if you say to your partner, man, I need a new pair of shoes, and then 
on your phone, it pops up and says the bay. It's bay days, by the way. If you need a new <laughs> pair of shoes, we just happen to know that. <laughs> you know how do how do you do that? If you wanted to call Google or Apple to task mm-hmm. for that somehow, I don't know if you could find a lawyer. You know, maybe in London, maybe there is somebody out there who could tell you this is how you you should go about that from a legal perspective. I have no idea, and I, yeah. and we don't have laws that in Canada and Ontario that deal with with those types of issues. Yeah. Like the, the, the tracking of metadata. Yeah. No. Yeah. Like, no, <laughs> it doesn't, there's no legal framework that I know of, yeah. um, to a to, that would assist you and I and Tom to, to, you know, protect ourselves. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it really is kind of a personal issue. Corporate policies governing personal information are usually yeah. defined in the sense of content data, not meta. And I, I think because large-scale institutions in society don't work with that question of metadata, the ways in which we as analysts think about the expectation for privacy on a daily basis is skewed. But I, I also don't know if I can get on board with your question because you're, you're asking about like how we as a society expect privacy or whether we don't. And I'm thinking about like the specific context mm. in which we're discussing here, right? Hockey players getting into a car. Mm-hmm. Did those guys expect to have any privacy? Obviously not, right? But there are lots of Wait, people... Wait, why is it obviously not? No, I think that they did. I think they did, yeah. I think they had a strong expectation that what they were saying in that car was not going to leave that car. Whether they should or they shouldn't have. Yeah, is the it's a different... But yeah. I don't think that if you said that there's a camera there, that they would have said those things. In my experience, growing up in a hockey community like London, I think the goal of aspiring to a high sense of ego and showing off supersedes any expectation of something like privacy. When I listened to what those guys were saying in that car, privacy was not mm. a priority. Mm. Yeah. That's showboating to me. Yeah. And that's, it is typical. I think that's normal. What was said in that car happens with hockey players and athletes and top notch organizations all of the time. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I don't know if you guys have heard of the podcast Spit and Chicklets. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm. that. Yeah. So I hadn't really got into that, and a couple of friends from work were, were saying, "Check it out. It's it's actually really entertaining, and it's got this cool perspective on exactly what you just you just alluded to." So I listened to the most recent podcast, and they talked about this very issue, and both Paul Bissonnette and um, Ryan Whitney said, "You you sh- this is this is par for the course, you mm-hmm. know, on Tuesday." In the NHL. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also the coaches are in the coaching room after the game, ripping the guys to shreds. Of course. It goes both ways. And mm-hmm. that's, that's no different in any, in any aspect of life. I mean, it's just, it is, it's normal. That was a normal conversation of coworkers, mm-hmm. right? Um, the difference, I think, is that somebody's willing to pay money to out it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you guys are, mm-hmm. you know, bitching yeah. about, bitching about, you know, office politics here. And you get recorded in a cab, that cab driver is not going to, you know, come to Kings and, you know, wave it around and say, who's going to give me $500 to see two of your, you know, you're right. It's a great point because the the driver apparently, I got this through Elliot Friedman on like hockey night in Canada or something on Sportsnet. He said that the driver intentionally shopped around the recorded footage to a bunch of different big purchasers potential big purchasers mm, i'm sure he did so he knew exactly who he was dealing with yeah he didn't know what team they played for he had to ask but once he figured it out and realized that he never got tipped his priority was just 
let's souse them. Yeah. Let's make some money off of this. I bet you those guys wish they, they pushed that little $3 button on their smartphone. Yeah, the little tip. I bet Three you wish they... Three bucks would have gone a long way. <laughs> now, you, you, raise a, like, you raise a really interesting point, and I don't know if you did this intentionally, and uh, that, this is not me talking about your intelligence. I think you're a very smart human. So I don't know if you were thinking about this when you were saying this, but... I found I find it this particular case interesting, particularly to the point that you were saying that we know that coaches do this. Mm-hmm. We know and we've seen like HBO, like that show that they do, um, wrote up to the Winter Classic and all those things, where we see coaches like talking trash about the players yeah. pretty often. But yet when it's reversed and players do it, it becomes like a, a whole controversy. Well, it's the coach's job to critique his players. Yeah. The player's job is to score goals or prevent them. This, this, yeah. this to me, seems like a, a social structural issue. Yeah. That we allow the management, the overseers, to critique, to criticize, to say whatever they want about their players, to send them down, to fire them, to, all these things. But yet, when the players resist that and come and get into an Uber and, and talk a little shit about their, uh, their coaches suddenly it becomes a, a, a huge issue. I think it's an analogy for just society in general. Yeah, and I think it's context too, because the guys, on to refer to the you know your competition podcast, so I'm sorry, but... Uh, to, to, no, all these podcasts are great. <laughs> yeah, to, to, uh, to refer to that again, it, it isn't in their world a yeah. big deal. Yeah, yeah. Coaches know. Yeah. You know, maybe they shouldn't have named them or something. I don't know. Yeah. You know, the second they start talking about special teams, everybody knows who the coach of special teams is. You yeah. can't hide anymore. But I guess what I'm getting at is that isn't something I think in their world that is actually that big a deal. Yeah. Um, it's it's the fact that it got blown up by the media yeah. and, you know, attached all these implications and the fact it was the poor Ottawa Senators. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of happy it's the Senators. Yeah, no, but I just mean the landslide effect of, of yeah. that team in yeah. the last six, this is just another, you know, piece yeah. of that puzzle yeah, right yeah, and sure. it fits a narrative for the media of the imploding sports franchise right so it's been an awful season for the sense yeah just awful there was a, like just before i came on this pod uh we, we started recording i was reading that the senators actually stopped the ottawa citizen which is like the newspaper in ottawa one of the local newspapers they they prevented the the um ottawa citizen reporter of on the sense from going on their charter with them they're they're because the ottawa citizen won't take down they wouldn't take down their coverage. Wow. There's a little weird censorship kind of um, micro conspiracy or a, a controversy, sorry, yeah. happening. Yeah. And I find that super fascinating from a censorship That's point of view. That's interesting. Yeah, what, like, okay, so they decided to that this is news, which is what newspapers do. They decide what is news and then they report. And because you disagree, you are not letting, you're basically blocking the Ottawa citizen from reporting on um, or you're revoking, um, I don't know, media a press passes. Pass. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps it, a lot of these things happen after the fact. Yeah, and that—that's why all—all all of this context is why this case is interesting to me. Not because there were a couple of hockey players talking shit. We know this happens. If yeah. anyone's played a sport, we know this happens. It's a heavily masculine culture, and it's a heavy pride-based culture in in the hockey world that. It's going to happen, all these, but it's everything else that's happening that's surrounding this case that I find so, so fascinating. Not to take attention away from you, Kale, but I, I got to ask 
Derek a question here because Derek's a sociologist, but he teaches in criminology as well. You're instructing first year crim, right? Yeah. No, I'm doing socialists. Yeah. No. Whatever. Let's just stick with the criminology yeah. thing and pretend that's what you're doing. <laughs> so <laughs> I know victim studies are really important in criminology. And I, I don't know a lot about this particular subfield or this, this specialty focus. But what I found fascinating about this case is that of all of the people who are getting the most attention because of this issue, we were seeing that the, the hockey players themselves are getting targeted in the media quite a bit and the senators are being targeted. The driver. I don't know anything about the guy. Yeah. He goes and potentially, potentially violates the privacy of these players. According mm-hmm. to Uber's perspective, they're Yeah, he violated violated. terms of service. And according to Arizona state law, they're not violated. No. According to Canadians, they are violated. Yeah. According to the senators and Canadian press, they're violated. But who the hell is a driver? I looked this guy up for maybe mm. an hour yeah. on the internet after Elliot Friedman had come out and said... This guy was shopping around the audio, which yeah. means he had a Twitter handle that could be used to identify this this individual. I don't mm. know anything about him. I couldn't find him I, anywhere. I know a little How bit. How does of, he get some privacy out of this? Oh, that that's true, and that's what he is. So I I read an article this morning that he's very he regrets this decision very much. That this was he quote is quoted in I, I believe CBC was the lead on this story. He was quoted saying this is the worst decision of his life, and that he has no privacy, and now. He, he's afraid that he already got fired from Uber. He's afraid that him and his six children, he has six children, are going to um, face some consequences uh, for this. Um, and oh, to the be... To, a bit irony, isn't I'm it? not yeah. entirely sure about um, how accurate this Elliot Freeman report is. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a reporter. I don't do any background investigation. Um, but uh, the report that I read said that he put it up he said that he put it up to warn other drivers, other Uber drivers about bad behavior in there. Whether you believe that or not, that's one thing. But he also was ordered to take it down, and he did when it only had 100 views. So it's not like this guy's YouTube channel was like, it was, oh my goodness. was yeah. just like he was making, raking in money. Right. I don't know if he actually went elsewhere to... Uh, to shop this around. I don't know how accurate that. That's a great story. So that's what makes me think like Elliot Freeman, the non-investigative journalist. Well, I mean, this, maybe this is a the statement best. that came out like 36, 48 hours ago. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah. In, inside of two days, less than two days, a lot has changed. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where does your head go on this? I see the, the wheel spinning over here and I'm, I'm curious what you're thinking. No, not, I, I don't have much more to say about it. Honestly. Um, I think it's, I think it's interesting because I'm interested in hockey and you've got the yeah. kind of the voyeurism of watching that. And yeah. you know, this is how it happens behind the scenes. So the hockey fan and the sports fan in me says that's entertaining, but the lawyer in me says, well, the implications of that, if that's something that becomes normalized uh, and is, and isn't restricted by law um, kind of scares me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and again, it doesn't affect me on a day-to-day basis in my job. That's, that's not what I am. I'm not a yeah. privacy yeah. lawyer. Um, but it certainly affects my clients. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an, another anecdote in that sense. So when I have a new uh, plaintiff client, so somebody who's been injured, one of the main aspects of my first meeting with that, with that person is to say, you need to be aware that the world at large can only see what you allow them to see, but that what you allow them to see can affect your case. Not that it will, mm-hmm. not, not that it has to. Um, but I, I talk to them about social media and, you know, if, if 
if you're very if you're very hurt and it's obvious because you can put it on an x-ray and say this person's hip is out that's a terrible injury right if that's the case then okay i mean recovery for you maybe you do broadcast some of that because you have an objective obvious injury but let's say you've got you know soft tissue injuries to your lower back and that doesn't just show up at an x-ray it's all about credibility it's all about convincing mm-hmm. the trier of fact be it a judge or jury that or the opposition if you're looking to settle um convincing them that what you you've got going on is real and is causing the kind of impairments and pain that you're, you're telling them that it does so then if you are captured ziplining in cuba mm-hmm. six months after your accident um that's a real life implication of of well, you know, if you post it yourself here nobody's infringing on your privacy but let's <laughs> let's say you're out with a group of 30 people and they go on a trip you pre-booked it you're like i'm hurt but i'm not you know i've already paid six grand for this trip or whatever yeah. i'm not skipping this i'm yeah. going and then and then one of those people captures you in the background doing cartwheels at the poolside because you've had too many right and that's that that could like very much could sink a case yeah Right. So I tell people, don't live your life for a lawsuit, but you need to be aware of what is on social media. Yeah. Right. So in that sense, that's what I that's where I go in yeah. my professional life is that kind of connection to what, mm-hmm. what those guys went through. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but but it, it is that is really a practical issue. And it's something that is built into my practice and has been since I began. But these, these things like this is kind of exactly why I wanted to sort of bring this up because these things that play out in a very niche area. So say Ottawa senators, it gets a lot of attention because it's professional sport actually have a trickle down effect to everything else. So our expectations of privacy based on this particular case also influences the ways in which we just understand the public sphere in general. And in your case, uh, talking about personal injuries, you, you often hear like the stories, oh, somebody's going to hire a, a PI and they're going to find you shoveling snow after you've hurt your back or something. That That is par for the course. Yeah. That happens in 75% of cases mm-hmm. or more. Not that they capture something of use, but yeah. that, that the attempt, the attempt is made. Ah, so that is a very, very common thing. That's, ah, Absolutely. That's, that's interesting. Absolutely it is. Wow. And how do you deal with that as someone who wants to protect your clients? It's, um... It's about credibility. Mm. It's about my mm. client. You know, the, the worst case scenario is that I have a person who's injured um, and that person goes to their, I referenced examinations for discovery earlier. They go and they give their evidence on the record, sworn evidence about their life prior to the incident, the incident mm-hmm. itself, and then since that time. And if they give evidence that says, uh, you know, if the lawyer asks them, did you shovel? Did, did you shovel the snow last winter? And they say, no, never. Nope, can't shovel. Hurts way too much. And then I get, you know, three weeks later, the video that says, you know, by the way, you know, there's, there's disclosure issues. They don't ambush that way, but yeah. you get my point, right? Yeah. Um, they, they're, you, that is a credibility issue because you yeah. just essentially lied. Whether, whether you just forgot and you did it once and they happened to catch you on the day, that that issue is, is live. And it is, it is truly one of the worst aspects of what my clients go through is the, yeah. the, invasion, the invasiveness of the process. Yeah. Having to lay their life on the line, uh, spill it out for five hours in a room, not dissimilar to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, just telling their story and getting it right is very difficult. And, and, and to think that there's people lurking in black SUVs with telephoto lenses, uh, that hurts. That's, that's not fun. Yeah. Like they think of like, that is a very real point for them. And they say, should I expect to be followed? And, I have to say yes, 
yes, it's, it's, it's not fun, but yeah. This point, this like highlights this irony of why. So one would expect that you have no privacy when you enter or you might have privacy when you're entering an Uber. But then in these cases, what's the expectation of privacy for these people? If somebody's going to follow you to your house and watch you and tape, videotape you, where's the public sphere and where's the private sphere in that in that sense? Well, they can't enter your property. Yeah. First and foremost. Yeah. Hence the telephoto lenses. Yeah. Um, there's a there's definitely like a jurisdiction aspect of that or like a, a, a geospatial. Uh, but like it's very tough to think of a context aside from like in your bedroom where you can have any expectation of privacy. And this I can see Tommy's losing his mind. Um, but I, I, I can almost see no, almost no place on this planet where I can reasonably expect to be private other than maybe my room my my personal bedroom i don't know if trust is enough but that's the first place my mind goes to part of what i'm doing at queen's university is this kind of like as you alluded to earlier kale this metadata tracking thing so i'm working with computer engineers regularly and i've been seeking out expertise and advice from computer engineers all across the western world i've spoken to people in germany in Holland, in France, in the U.S., all over Canada, U of T a couple times recently. And the one thing that all engineers seem to be synon- or, uh, unanimous about, excuse me, is that the only way, the only way you could ever get an institution to prove to you that the way in which they handle your data can be transparent and can be made legible and visible for us as analysts to study and understand and then educate about mm-hmm. is if you have proper trust with them. So now they're insinuating that none of the institutions can be trusted, but the premise upon which that critique is founded is this notion that an institution could be trusted in the first place, that somebody or something or an assemblage of things and and people can be honest enough that you can cultivate a relationship that's meaningful and reliable. And there are a few engineers out there who seem to think that that's possible, right? But in terms of expectation, how do we get there? as a society? How does an individual? So, and this is part of the reason why I was balking at your question earlier, man. How do we as a society expect privacy? We can't generalize over top of people who work very, very hard to engineer their devices Mm -hmm. to make these flows legible. And at the same time, I don't know if we can dismiss institutions entirely in terms of their, their willingness to be transparent. Where does your, your mind go on this? So you're probably going to push back knowing you, that's what you're going to do. Maybe we should ask Kale the same question. <laughs> I'm not a sociologist. I just well, apparently <laughs> we have a lot more in common than I thought, so I'm sure you've got something. Yeah. Um, Can you trust an institution enough in order to just expect privacy when you enter into a car with cameras in it or when you walk into a government building that they're not going to manipulate what they see? So I'm paid to be a pessimist. I'm paid to see the worst. So am I. The worst. We case have that scenario. in common. Yeah. <laughs> so I like I, I my role is to find the worst case scenario mm. and then attempt to diffuse it or mm. prevent it. So I'm inherently skeptical of of trusting anything, <laughs> mm. uh, and that's a byproduct of training and experience of what I do, right? And I, I don't know if I was that person prior to law school. I think I was. I don't to some think degree. you were. To some degree, I was there. But, a little bit, but. But um, yeah, so from my perspective, um, I think it's it's a 
to trust to trust anything important to someone who doesn't have any of your interests in mind mm. is is a, is a folly i think so until that trust can be established repeatedly and perhaps legislated um no i i don't i don't know how that we get there i don't know how do we trust institutions and institutions i am making i'm uh, this is a general comment mm -hmm. when time after time after time after time you see where i'm going with this after time after time they fail people other people exactly as kale just sort of alluded to when they don't have your interest in mind well keep in uh, mind like when you say institution maybe you define that for me just because i don't know what an institution is when you're in this discourse anyway uh, so I want to provide an anecdote for some context here. And I know we're running close up to the clock. No, right? no, no. We can talk all day and sort this out after. This is a great conversation. This is awesome. Okay, so let me share this anecdote. And I can't be too specific because this particular um, group of actors that I'm working with are just going to st stay defined that way. I can't talk about specifics. Mm -hmm. But anyways, this particular group is in charge of overseeing medical data for over half of the population of our country. And when I talk to them about encryption protocols, blockchain protection, match compare protection, we're talking about people who don't sleep at the idea that somebody could reverse engineer those encryption protocols, fully well knowing mm -hmm. that none of these individuals know anything about who these people are. The data is anonymized, and they work very, very hard and diligently to make sure that it's anonymized, right? The idea that they couldn't be trusted would be almost offensive because they will bleed out over this. There are people who work in engineering capacities in this country who see themselves and are fairly internationally recognized as being world leaders in privacy protection. Those people... Who pays those people? Government, private sector. The money comes from everywhere. I, but generally private sector. I, I think that to, to kind of answer your question and respond briefly to you, institutions, at least in a, a common sociological understanding, um, is a collection of actors and or material objects that create a constellation around a formal formalized objective. Um, so it's not necessarily um, a, an institution that, let's say, a, a government institution, but it can be. Um, institutions are relatively formal and stable patterns of social interactions okay. that exist over time. What, he, what Tommy is kind of highlighting here is that individuals that tend to make up organizations or institutions can be morally and ethical ethically um, capable of figuring of protecting our privacy sure but as you're pointing out when there is an institution that or when who is paying those people when these people make up something that exists outside of themselves that individual intention oftentimes as as we've seen in history the, that that intention goes away and it doesn't matter um one of the famous sociologists max weber he argued that bureaucracy fuels more bureaucracy that eventually it becomes disconnected from individual agency the agency to protect human uh, 
privacy, it becomes disconnected from that and it starts to serve that bureaucracy. So when you have good people who make up these organizations and these institutions, that intention may not matter is kind of what I'm getting at. That yes, there are great people that work for institutions, but when you're actually, when the objective is to either make money or to make change, that that individual agency goes away. Yeah. I mean, that was my point when I said who pays, yeah. you know, the, the purpose, the stated purpose of any corporation is to earn money for their shareholders. Yeah. And, and that, that can't be ignored. And an individual actor within that corporation absolutely can have great intentions. Yeah. Um, and, and, and maybe if that person has enough influence within their organization, they can drive, they can drive the corporations, you know, if it's a small enough corporation, especially yeah. if they're part of a huge corporation, um, it might be subsumed by the yeah. bigger goal, right? Yeah. And that's, I think that's what I have a problem with in terms of trust is, you know, the person I'm dealing with face-to-face on something is just a piece, a cog in the big wheel, and they, yeah. don't, they don't control it mm-hmm. necessarily. So that's where my inherent distrust might come from. And I think of like, and I, and I, and I woefully under-equipped to have this conversation with you guys, but a guy like Snowden, who, you know, maybe had you know, saw, you know, if you're if the movie is to be believed anyways, maybe saw the insidious nature of what his skills and his abilities were, was doing. Uh, NSA, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and tried to walk it back to the best of his ability. Um, he was a, if, if, again, it's to be believed from his standpoint, mm-hmm. he was the person you're talking about, who, who, you, who you'd want there to try to protect society. And he was subsumed and is now in exile. So yeah. that's where that distrust, I think, mm-hmm. for a layman, like a layman yeah. in this yeah. sense that I am, um, is difficult to reconcile and go forward with uh, so, trusting institutions. That's really interesting. It's, it's really interesting. And what it's making me think about um, are two things. And the first one is just a point of full disclosure. I am not normally somebody who defends an institution in any capacity. I know that. This is true. very, you know this <laughs> yeah. about me personally. Yes, yes. You know this about me professionally. Um, I'm doing this for the sake of variety, but I also have, you know, a little bit of a stake in this game now with the research that I'm currently doing, which I can talk about later. Now's not the time for it. Secondly, the reason why I'm a bit apprehensive about this kind of inability to cultivate a sense of trust in any actor that has um, some material and ideological size and momentum beyond us as individuals is because it's so reminiscent of of the things that critical security scholars are so critical of in the first place. If you just not trust everything, if you potentially see everything as a threat, you enable the evolution of things like military-industrial surveillance complex, right? I mean, this Mm -hmm. is the premise upon which the economy and the money that makes these assemblages possible in the first place driven, right? Don't trust anybody. You need more surveillance to fix mm-hmm. the problem. This is self-perpetuating You're right. rabbit hole, right? Yeah, yeah. So is could it not be the case then that maybe building trust and actually relying on it a little bit is the way to stop this self-perpetuating? Oh, ideally, spiral? absolutely. Yes, ideally, I agree with you completely. That is That should be a goal, is to be able to, to build that, mm-hmm. that level of understanding between an institution and, you know, little old me, yeah. right? Um, I, I, I think it's just, Maybe it comes down to language again. Maybe it comes down to being able to accurately convey what that institution is trying to do 
um, and, and, you know, putting the money where the mouth is, for lack of a better term, and saying, here's how that affects you in your life to the regular person. And I think it's just so confusing right now. It's just, there's so much going on and there's so many different viewpoints and the fear aspect of what you don't know is so perpetuated and constantly bombarding you. Um, I think of like my, the news feed for social media on my phone and it's just perpetually bad news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's really difficult to wade through that and find the good things happening in the institutions of the world right now. Um, and it, it requires effort. I think primarily requires yeah. effort. And that is worrying because effort isn't something that everybody in our society right now is willing to put into anything but mm. getting get in mind mm-hmm. often, right? It takes time. It's difficult, difficult to measure all of the issues that we... Yeah. That we you can't of, just pick up the New York Times yeah. like it's 1971, read it and say, well, this is a pretty black and white issue and I choose yeah. black. I choose white. Yeah. Or maybe it's a bit gray if I'm yeah. kind of an astute person, but it, that now it's like, here's, here's the entire color spectrum. And you need to find your particular shade of fuchsia <laughs> if you want to be able to actually figure it all out. And like, who can do that? Yeah, it's I, hard. I sat down with uh, a director, a graduate program director at Queens, and he oversees a program in business analytics. And I asked him, if you were to have a lecture that would demonstrate reliably to young people, young graduate students, precisely how a big data apparatus works in a corporate <laughs> empire, what would you show them? And he just kind of looked at me and I think almost threw up in his mouth a little bit and then swallowed it and just kind of said, like, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Here's why. And he turns his big, beautiful, curved LED monitor towards me. And he hits Control-Delete on his Windows operating system. And he shows me this, like, seemingly never-ending list of processes. And he starts asking me questions like, do you know how many subroutines are stacked on top of the kernel level of the operating system? It's like exponential, Tom. Every time we talk about like five, six, twelve degrees removed from the original base of the operating system, we've got subroutine upon subroutine upon subroutine. These are all algorithms. And he said, you become an expert in two of these in a lifetime. Nobody knows really comprehensively mm-hmm. how a computer works. In this day and age, it's impossible. He says to me, the fact that the world is as networked as it is, is a, a, a massive achievement that can never be properly understood. Maybe the reason why we can't get to a point of talking about trust and reliability and transparency is simply because we couldn't put together, the three of us, if we tried, 30 people that could make sense of how a computer really functions. Mm -hmm. It's all algorithmic, and and nobody understands how an algorithm really functions. Language. Language. It's the breakdown. And we don't have a discourse that anybody and everyone can speak we don't, we don't speak the same language on this. You guys speak a, a high, high level, um, in-depth language when it comes to interpretation of data mm-hmm. and information, and not many other people do. So I how don't do you, understand how do you, Derek how do you bridge time, that, so. right? Like, but how, yeah. do you, how do you dumb down something as complex as what you just described so that anyone can read it and say, I'm now equipped to then trust yeah. those actors? Yeah, I, democ- I don't know how you do that. Democracy needs language. Democracy needs discussion at the end of the day to be fully democratic. And what, that's what we're talking about here. When we talk about trust, trusting institutions, well, it's, we need to have a trust in democracy. And where does democracy fail? When people don't talk and yeah. when people aren't, there's not a dialogue going on. And I agree completely. The issue here is that it's so complex that there, is, there can't be a dialogue from the very beginning. 
So then that's where my skeptic, my skepticism starts. If we can't have that discussion, somebody is making a decision somewhere. And I don't know who it is. I don't know how to even think about it. I don't know. Eventually somebody's got to make a decision. It can't, we don't live in a world of AI where the computers run our world. A human does something somewhere. Yeah. And I'll be skeptical until I figure out how that gets to that human. And why. I'll, exactly. And why and how that's being interpreted and what that, what's going into that decision making, whether it be a, a political choice, an economic choice, a moral choice. I, I can't even get off the floor in terms of trust. One thing that I wanted to bring up that I didn't bring up in our previous discussions about the intersection of privacy and the law is, um, so there's a tort, which is essentially a cause of action being something that you can bring a lawsuit for. I think mm. I've captured that as succinctly as I can. A tort called intrusion, intrusion upon seclusion. Um, Google that. It's a great done. name. Intrusion right? upon seclusion. Yes. The tort of intrusion upon seclusion. So it's, it's new. It's, um, maybe five years since that really became a thing. Mm -hmm. The Ontario Court of Appeal, uh, there's a big case, I believe, involving one of the big banks uh, and an expectation of privacy. Uh, I think about an employee, and, and I'm going back to like five years ago when I first read the decision, and I can't, I can't recall exactly what it is, and I should have, been, maybe, you know, I can follow up with you guys in, in a year and come on for episode <laughs> 63, we'll talk about it. Um, but, uh, and I'll have a better sense of it. But if you, if you look up intrusion upon seclusion, maybe the next time you guys do a cast together, Give it a chat. Kale brought this up, and here's what I think about it. Um, and, and I'd be interested to, to have another discussion about that. I'm just equipped, unequipped right now mm. to do that. Mm. I just know that it exists, and it popped into my head. Guys, I'm sorry to interrupt this. My, my phone's exploding. Uh, I've got to go pick up my fiance. I, I would love wow. to just go get her and You're come back down. You're just bailing on the podcast. I know, just bailing on the podcast. And I would love to do at least another couple episodes with you guys because this has been so fascinating. Yeah, Kale, it's been, it's been awesome having you on. Yeah, I've had fun. Thanks so much for coming in, man. I'm really looking forward to getting you back on here. Yeah, great. In the meantime, though, to finish off, you got to help me out a little bit. It seems with each year that passes, as I leave grad school, I'm getting more and more former students asking me, can you write me a letter of reference for law school? I'm getting far less people asking for references and support going to grad school than I am law school. And I don't know anything about your field. Yeah. What would you tell a sociologist or a criminologist or a political science student who wants to make that leap out of the social sciences and into the world of law? Um, so the study of law is inherently academic. So it's, it's not so dissimilar from, you know, going to grad school. It, it, once you're there is when the change happens. So law school trains you how to think. It doesn't necessarily provide you, its focus isn't upon providing you with substantive knowledge. Uh, a lawyer, a good lawyer has the ability to find what they need because they have the tools to do it. And you build the basis, the bedrock of those tools in law school. That, that is, should be the purpose. Yeah. And I think the people who excel in law school are the people who can see that and don't say, I need to memorize these cases. Um, that's important. You write your tests. That's how you're measured. Mm. Um, as antiquated as that might be, that is how it works. But you need to focus on skills. So for somebody who's coming out of a sociology background, again, I was a minor uh, in sociology. So somebody coming out of that background, uh, I was a history major. Uh, my writing was up to par. Mm -hmm. I could write mm -hmm. to the level that I needed to be able to write in law school. And that's an element. So if you, you need to look at yourself critically, um, maybe for the first time, for some people, 
and say, where are my downfalls? Because law is inherently practical, but it's also academic. And you need to find out where your weaknesses are and address them before you apply. Because you don't want to show up in first year and get trounced because you never actually figured out how a semicolon works or something. And that's a very pedantic point, but you know what I'm saying? You you really need to see the holistic who you are. And I think that goes for pretty much any other post-grad program. Yeah, I feel like that's very similar to really anything that you're doing. It certainly is. Um, But but law school is about skill, building skills, as much as it is about figuring out the actual law. Um, And and I think the people who excel in that venue, in that area, are the people who learn who they are and then address those shortcomings quickly, as quickly as possible. That's, yeah. that's not only great legal advice, that's great, uh, actually, I shouldn't say legal advice. That's, that's great advice about life loss, advice. but just life advice yeah. as well. Yeah, like I, for instance, guys, like I, I have sat down with many people who either go or want to go to, to the school that I went to in school in Australia, and it's, it's unique, and they have questions about, you know, where do I live, and where, you know, those are, those are all mm-hmm. important questions. Yeah. Um, but these questions aren't asked of me ever. Yeah. These are, these are things that I've, in retrospect, realized that I needed to figure out when I got there. And I came from a career where I'd been working for six years before I went to law school. Yeah. So I had a bit more practical, real life. This is how it works. How is this how going mm-hmm. to work? Nine to five works. Yeah. This is, these, are the, these are the issues that come with that. Yeah. So I kind of had a sense of that already. I didn't need to build that in. But you know, students, students who I talk to about wanting to go to law school, be it here or abroad, they don't ask those questions mm. because how do you know them if you haven't been in it, right? Yeah. So that's, I think, is my best advice is you got to sit back, look at yourself, figure yeah. out, you know, if you're not a great writer, become a great writer because yeah. law is about language and words yeah. and you need to be good with them. Yeah. If you're, if you're a great, if you're great at synthesizing information, that's like, that's an amazing skill yeah. in, in law school. Um, but if you can't write it down afterward, yeah. you can't convey it, then it's not going to work. It's not going to work for you. Game so. over. I've I've never I've never really thought about how many overlaps there are between the legal profession and uh, an academic career mm-hmm. until today. Yeah, really, it's been really eye opening. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kale, for coming in. Thanks for having me. And um, we're going to get you back on this pod. <laughs> because, um, this was a good. We're at an hour and twenty two minutes now, which is wild. Um, but have thank- fun editing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, and uh, we'll we'll catch you on the next episode. Great. Like I said. I followed you, so I'll be I'll be listening to the next ones too. So, <laughs> yes. so if yes. you say anything negative about me, we have our fourth. I'm coming. Our fourth <laughs> listener. <laughs> Maybe we'll have five by Christmas. Thanks uh-huh. again for joining. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us on another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, check us out online. You can find my co-host Derek at Derek Krim, and myself on my brand new Twitter handle at What's That Data. Follow us on Google Music and iTunes as well. And until next time, keep listening to the noise.